Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. In the Chinese region of Xinjiang, or what the Uyghurs call East Turkestan, tens of thousands of ethnic Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities have been detained inside enormous re-education camps. China faces mounting pressure from international human rights groups, governments and academics to end these practices, and joining me today to discuss this is Nuri Turkel of the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Welcome to you, Nuri. Thank you very much for having me. Also joining us today is James Leibold, Associate Professor in Politics at La Trobe University and expert in ethnicity, race and national identity in modern China. Thank you for joining me, James. Nice to be with you again, Matt. So if you could tell me about what is the context of Uyghurs and other Chinese ethnic minorities? Why are they perceived to be a threat in modern China? The Uyghur people are Turkic Muslims. Uh, Their culture, uh, language, uh, history are related to the other Turkic peoples in Eurasian continent, including the Kazakhs, Uzbeks, and Turks further west. Mm. Uyghur people have been subject to all types of social and political uh, repression and discrimination in the past. But Chinese government, particularly since the 9-11 and then July 5, 2009, and then April 2017, have been perceiving uh, the Uyghur ethno-national cultural identity as the source of political resentment or political threat Mm. to the party, uh, to Xi Jinping's China. And that's part of the reason that they have uh, implemented the current Uh, policies, engaging in a modern-day concentration camps in 2018 by locking up more than a million Uyghurs and Turkic Muslims in various camps that we've been reading and hearing from the witnesses as we speak, actually. Mm. This doesn't just extend to Uyghurs, though. There's quite a a wide Turkic Muslim kind of community. We don't know um, the full extent of who is in these camps. I mean, uh, we do know there are a handful of people who have managed to either escape or largely have been let go Mm. uh, due to the pressure of uh, foreign governments. In particular, there are a number of Kazakh Uyghurs with Kazakh citizenship that have managed to get out of Xinjiang. And they've told uh, their story of uh, the abuse that they've suffered inside these camps. And so I see this as a kind of broader attack on Islam. But of course, in the case of Xinjiang, the Uyghurs are the largest Islamic group in the region and no doubt have bore the brunt of China's radical new policy in the region. So the most visible target, so to speak, to go after? You mentioned specific dates. Chinese government has formulated and implemented uh, different policies over the year. It depends on the international inv- climate, uh, for example, uh, right after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, the Uyghurs were labeled as a splitist. After 9-11, that changed the Uyghur uh, when the Chinese government's waging is public propaganda campaign mm. tell both domestic and international audience that the Uyghurs also have uh, terrorist activities. Since 2017, uh, they formulated and implemented uh, something that has been described as a de-extremification measures that sanctions some of the most normal and appreciated uh, social behaviors in civilized societies. Mm. Uh, that includes growing beard, uh, adhering to a Muslim diet, greeting each other in Islamic way, and, and that also inc- includes parents 
stay away from or stay out of their children's love affairs with non-Uyghur, non-Muslim individuals. So a foreign policy magazine listed 48 behaviors that will fit into the category of uh, sanctioned uh, social and personal uh, behaviors and practices. So that is uh, technically the beginning of this current environment. Mm. In the previous policies, the Chinese government engaged in what's called the social engineering, banning the Uyghur language in education, forcing Uyghurs to go to Chinese medium schools, and send the Uyghur kids to inland Chinese high school boarding schools. And the, the culture, Uyghur culture, gradually marginalized. Freedom of speech is almost uh, getting to the point of being dead. And anyone who resents or expresses concern either disappears or end up being imposed a heavy penalty. Back in 2012, even the Chinese government quite comfortably used a word a punishment on the spot policy, meaning a traffic police can kill you if you resist. Actually, there's a report by Radio Free Asia describing a young man running red light on a motorcycle and getting killed by a traffic police. So Chinese government likes the world to believe that they're doing this mass incarceration projects mm. to achieve their national security. But you don't do that by locking up farmers, shopkeepers, religious figures, uh, influential uh, individuals, philanthropists, professors, rectors. My organization documented at least 48 university professors being taken away. The president of uh, Xinjiang University, a Japan-educated scholar, once promoted by the Chinese government as a model uh, Uyghur, has been imposed death penalty with two years reprieve last year. He was one of the first wave of what's called um, two-faced uh, government officials. Mm. So they tried different things, but now at the request of uh, one of the most influential uh, social scientists and now the uh, government official, Hu Lianhe, that the Uyghur problem must be taken to the final solution stage. That's a loaded term. And yeah, when you hear that term, and then uh, the Chinese government has very uh, specific quotes like this, break their lineage, break their roots, break their connections, and break their origin. Mm. This is the way the Chinese government set up to take some individuals into the camps and then moving into the families of the individuals who have been locked up to monitor the remaining ma family members' uh, activities, communication, thoughts, behaviors in the, in the private setting. Mm. So recently, a scholar, US-based scholar, did a investigative reporting on what's called family stay, homestay. So the Chinese government sent over a million uh, cadres into the homes of the Uyghurs with this specific purpose, to break the lineage, break the family, sleeping, eating, talking, socializing in the house with the family members. One of the most jarring information that I learned from that reporting is that the Chinese making the kids to spy on their parents. Those of us who have the luxury of living in a civilized world would not even tolerate somebody sitting on our dining table uh, uninvited, mm. let alone trying to sleep on our beds, let alone having our children to spy on us. So that's just part of the Uyghur's um, daily struggle. Yeah. So can you tell me about the re-education camps? You've, you've called them cultural revolution on steroids. I've, I've heard you use that term before to describe it. And is 
re-education, whose word is that? Is that the Chinese government's word? Is that a term that you would use to describe these? That is the term that the Chinese government euphemistically been using. Mm. As you know, they first denied the existence. And then back in August, after a UN official gave McDougall challenging the Chinese government, they were forced to take a position. They did not deny, but they characterized it as a re-education programs as if that they're trying to train uh, a university professor with PhD and uh, Western education to learn how to use tools, uh, perhaps, with the mindset of sending them to uh, Western assembly lines. Mm. It sounds ridiculous, but I'm just trying to be very cynical of that term. And um, when they use that term, it reminded me of the experience that I and my family gone through. But it's a very different nature. That was a cultural revolution. The entire nation was affected. Mm. But this one was specifically targeted. In Mike Pence's words, Chinese government is attempting to strangle Uyghur culture and stamp out the Muslim face. So there's a fundamental difference, even though it was conducted by the same government. Uh, this particular one has a lot of racist character. Mm. This one has a, a very uh, unstated but quite clear uh, China dream geopolitical context. Uh, so I like to be hopeful, but I think this doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. Their expansion process has been actually speed up. One of the most recent reports suggested that in less than two years, surveying 28 facilities, the expansion rate is 465%. Mm -hmm. So they're seeing the results that they want and they're expanding. It's been reported with images that uh, the Chinese government is in the works to uh, build the largest prison camp just outside of Urumqi, an area called Davanchang. Mm. There is a report that this system may be expanded to Nangxia, which is a Hui Muslim uh, territory. Mm. And we've been reading about, hearing about some authoritarian governments looking to the Chinese way of uh, squelching domestic resentment. So we're in a long haul. This is why I am so adamant and so vocal that this is not only about Uyghurs. Mm. This is about humanity. This is a matter of conscience. This is about our sovereignty, meaning in the Western world. So I think we need to wake up to this reality. We've been somewhat successful in the last 10 months or so, gaining so much traction in various governments, particularly in media. But people have not shown, especially the government officials, have shown the type of leadership that we have seen during the Second World War. Mm. Jim, what's your long view, I suppose, on where this trend has come from and where it might be going? Do you see this as just part of China's step? Yeah, well, the longer-term picture here is that China has long adopted a kind of civilizing approach towards its ethnic periphery. It goes way back. And when the Chinese Communist Party was seeking to come to power, it realized, in addition to that civilizing motivation with regards to ethnic diversity, that sometimes it needed to adopt a more strategic, a more pragmatic approach to even accommodate ethnic difference as a way of stabilizing the frontier, a way of co-opting people into the party system. And so 
you've seen, you know, over the last 70 years, the party kind of swing back and forth between an accommodationist approach towards diversity and then an, a, a more assimilatory mm. approach towards it. So we just talk about the recent past in the 1980s, they institutionalized this accommodationist approach, um, passed in uh, 1984, a law on regional ethnic autonomy that in theory was supposed to give ethnic groups like the Uyghurs uh, the ability to rule themselves by their own customs, their laws, and their languages. And you did have a period of uh, liberal approach uh, to diversity where the weaker culture did prosper, the language did, and the religion as well. But what we've seen certainly in the last couple decades, and uh, we could talk about certain turning points, I think 1989 and the student demonstrations was one. I think the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 was another. And then the outbreak of violence, first in Lhasa and then in Rumchi in 2008, 2009. And this kind of convinced the party that it needed to, uh, to move in a different direction, a far more assimilative approach to take efforts to more forcefully integrate groups like the Uyghurs into the Chinese nation. Mm. And under Xi Jinping, this has really been given the go-ahead. And while they keep the rhetorical trappings and the legal trappings of autonomy, uh, the reality is that the policies have been far more forcefully aimed at integrating. So if we look at the case of Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, you see the implementation of what they call bilingual education, which is essentially mandating that every Uyghur uh, become fluent in standard uh, Chinese. You have the rolling back of religious practices to try to kind of hollow them out, allow mosques to exist as museum showpiece. You even go in, uh, as Neri talked about, into the household, into the family mm. to monitor very closely to eradicate any non-standard forms of behavior, whether it be how long you grow your beard, what type of headdress you wear, uh, how long your skirt is. There's been attempts to kind of wind back the Uyghur culture, the Uyghur language, and the Uyghur religion, and to try to standardize them in a kind of Han normative cultural sense. Yeah. With the case of the re-education camps in Xinjiang, you see the most extreme element of this uh, civilizing project, one that has abandoned any efforts to try to persuade people to adopt Han norms and rather just uses coercive approaches ultimately to domesticate and to eradicate uh, the Uyghur culture and identity. The Chinese government isn't denying that these camps exist anymore, but they're still arguing about the purpose. I, I saw a propaganda video the other day which very much showed people in the camps playing their own instruments and saluting the Chinese flag. And You know, I mean, as Neri pointed out, for over a year, they were in denial. They denied that this new policy was being implemented. And then in the face of overwhelming evidence that was gathered up by academics, journalists, activists. International? Chiefly international, yeah. which include you know, documentation about bid construction contracts for the camps, satellite imagery, Chinese language documents, testimony of people who escaped. The Chinese government felt like they had to try to get back in control of the narrative. And so in August, the UN Commission on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, Julian He, got up and said, China has a problem with terrorism, and our response is a unique response to create these benign vocational training centers where people who have been uh, radicalized can then receive 
not only proper training in uh, Mandarin Chinese and Chinese law, mm. but also useful vocational skills that, that will help them to reintegrate back into their community. And then you, you, know, you had um, propaganda videos that came out to, to show you what supposedly life is like inside these camps with people singing and dancing and you know, studying hard and learning a skill. This is a kind of attempt to put forward a, an aspirational view of what the Chinese Communist Party would like to see these camps as. Mm. You know, the reality is, and we know this from the way policy is implemented in China, local officials are given a lot of uh, scope to determine how dictates from above are implemented and often don't have the proper resources to do this in an effective way. And so while we don't fully understand what's happening inside these camps. We certainly have the testimony of people who have gotten out of them, and they depict a very different set of circumstances. Cells that are overcrowded, you know, upwards of 30 detainees in a single cell, very poor hygiene conditions, widespread malnutrition, coercive forms of physical and mental torture. Mm. You know, where people are, are forced to kind of sing a song praising the Chinese Communist Party. We've now entered this era where we've got these kind of contrasting visions of what's happening. Neri, you must be hearing a lot of these stories that are coming out of the camps and, and hearing accounts. And you were nodding during what Jim was saying there. Um, what's your take on all of this? As Jim pointed out, the Chinese are forcing the Uyghurs to assimilate. I go even further. The Chinese people and the government have a serious problem not realizing their culture, their language, their preference in life are not something universal. Mm. And they have no right to force the Uyghur people to give up their centuries-old ethno-national tradition, the language, the pride, the dignity, the values. So what the Chinese government has been doing in addition to the uh, assimilation process is to engage in human engineering. So the Uyghurs uh, with Eurasian connection, historically, even genetically, uh, will eventually uh, look some European-looking or foreign-looking folks with a very strong uh, Chinese presence. Some scholars in the United States have compared this to a conversion therapy that some people force homosexuals to transfer to heterosexuals. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a proud group of people who once known as sons of the conquerors uh, believe that they contribute to the civilization through science and literature. They attempt to force such an ancient people into something they have been reluctant, resistant, is going to create more long-term problem, not only for the Uyghur people, but for the Chinese society as a whole. So I hope somebody, some way, somehow will realize that this is going to create a huge backlash. This is going to create a dark spot on Chinese image in the history books. I don't know if they really care. Mm. We still talk about Nazi Germany today. Uh, The history is taking a a strange turn and repeating itself. So I call on the um, uh, Chinese people who might be listening to this uh, program inside in China and outside of China to think for a minute, what kind of world do we want for our children? Uh, we now know that the Chinese government locking up innocent people based on their ethnicity and religion in a modern-day concentration camps. Are we going to tell our children that we knew, knew all about this and did nothing? 
and what kind of role model that, that we wanted to set up for our children or for to the next generation. Mm. I'm not trying to create a hysteria, but think about it. The Chinese government has a very specific objective. This is going to be a new norm. Are you concerned that it's going to go further, though? Because re-education insinuates at some point that they're going to be educated in a new thinking and let out. Since last August, the general narrative is one million people or up to a million. Even it's thousand people. Somebody has to come out. Somebody has to go through that process and be cleared and leave the camp. Mm. To this day, we only have, as Jim pointed out, a few Kazakhs, uh, one or two Uyghurs. But man- that's due to international pressure. Yeah, they, haven't been, to- they haven't been let out as you know star education yeah. results. Why, why people don't, are not leaving and why the Chinese government is building the largest prison in the world? Mm. One of the most well-spoken recent uh, victim told the U.S. Congress that she witnessed uh, several people died in the uh, camp that she was uh, detained. And she was telling us horrible stories. Her stories are consistent with what we heard in the past. This is not an overnight thing. Mm. This has been in the process of making for years. To add to that, I think it's important to remember that thought control is really long been the modus operandi of the Chinese Communist Party. In Chinese political culture, there's a belief that acceptance of social hierarchy, people are born uh, with different levels of innate sujur, what it's known as sujur in Chinese, or an innate quality. Uh, so if you take, uh, for example, a Uyghur farmer in southern Xinjiang, he's pretty much uh, down near the bottom of the, uh, of the evolutionary ladder. A Han party official in Beijing near the top. And of course, who sits on the very apex of it at present? It's Xi Jinping. But the party, as all-knowing and benevolent and enlightened, it has a responsibility to try to improve the sujur of its citizens. And so we've seen throughout the history, 70-odd-year history of the Chinese Communist Party, repeated campaigns aimed at thought control started back in Yan'an in the 1940s uh, when Mao tried to assert his control over the party. 1950s, they began to round up what they called social parasites, prostitutes, beggars, etc. Of course, we had numerous political campaigns, um, the anti-rightist campaign in the 1950s, the Cultural Revolution, where people were taken away, you know, tried to transform uh, their thinking and get them to denounce their capitalist ways. Into the modern period, it continues again. I mean, I think the closest parallel of what's happening in Xinjiang today is probably the party's campaign against the Falun Gong uh, religious uh, practitioners detained in similar type camps, not on the same scale or intensity, but the same process was at play. Mm. So this is a repeated kind of cyclical campaigns aimed at transforming human populations. What we see when we can look back at previous ones, we see that they ultimately fail uh, through exhaustion, the extensive cost of running these uh, these programs and the individuals that are subjected to this form of thought control often leave with very deep a sense of uh, alienation and resentment. So as Neri said, we don't know if people are going to leave uh, these camps at some stage en masse, but if they do, likely they're going to leave with a tremendous amount of resentment that is very toxic for not only the Xinjiang society, but Chinese society more broadly. But it sounds like if there is going to be an end game, it's going to be that. Nothing, it seems, would be effective against China uh, as far as international pressure. 
There's no tariff you could put on them that would make them close these re-education camps, for example. Well, there's some interesting efforts in Washington, and, and Nuri can probably speak directly about uh, yeah, what... I'd, I'd like to know about the international efforts. Do you think that they've been adequate? You were quoting Mike Pence before. That seems to be the highest profile response there has been worldwide to this issue. It's past time for action. Yeah. Um, the narrative is pretty clear. Something horrific is happening. I don't think that uh, the government's concerned individuals in the highest level were prepared for something in this scale. So it is the pressure on China's mounting. In Washington, under the leadership of uh, Senator Marco Rubio and Representative Chris Smith, who co-chairs the Congressional Executive Committee on China, the camp issue, to be exact, uh, has gained a great deal of interest, a commitment. As a result, there's a bipartisan bill has been introduced. It's called the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act. The first time in the Uyghur history, Western capital, Western government ever touched even something in that nature. Mm. On the policy level, we are expecting the United States government to sanction some officials, several key officials, to send the message and hopefully uh, change Chinese government's policies with respect to this mass incarceration uh, specifically. And then two, in the legislatively, there's something uh, seriously uh, being taken uh, place. This bipartisan bill already drew bipartisan support. It's very important in American politics. And three, the media interests, both here and the United States and Europe, have been incredibly, as a Uyghur, I never thought that I would see this level of media scrutiny. Mm. It's for the bad reason, but also in a positive note, people start learning about Uyghurs. Mm. So it's good publicity for the wrong reasons. It's a good reason for the world to know Uyghur grievances. So I'm, <laughs> I'm an optimist, at least try to be an opt optimist <laughs> under the circumstance, but this is actually helping the Uyghurs to stand up and for the Western societies to know, or the world to know about the Uyghur uh, suffering. Yeah, yeah. A bit of a backfire if that is the case for China. I wish I was as optimistic as Yuri. Um, that's one of the things I really appreciate about you, your, <laughs> your constant optimism and uh, advocacy work on this issue. I mean, from where I sit, I worry a little bit that the United States under Donald Trump has kind of lost its moral legitimacy on this issue. Here, I think, first and foremost, of uh, the refusal to sanction Saudi Arabian officials over the, the, the death, death of, Khashoggi. Of, yeah, yeah. Uh, of Jamal Khashoggi. Donald Trump has yet to speak out on this issue. Uh, hard to know what, if anything, he knows about it. We'll see if the uh, bill that uh, Yuri was mentioning will pass the Congress. But if you look at it kind of globally, China's done a pretty effective job of kind of isolating groups that they claim are hostile to it, and, uh, largely Western countries. If we look at the uh, periodic review of China at the UN, and we look at uh, those countries that made statements of concern about what was happening in Xinjiang, there's just a couple dozen, as mm. opposed to the hundreds that China has been able to co-opt and literally buy their vote through uh, economic incentives. The most glaring omission is from elsewhere in the Muslim world 
countries like uh, Pakistan, like Saudi Arabia uh, and others who have not spoken out about the plight of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang. So there's still a long way to go to convince the wider world that this is an issue that they should be concerned about and to have a kind of united uh, front of pressure to force China to change its uh, policies in the region. And in the meantime, the Uyghurs are still in re-education camps. It's, yes, sadly, it's, it's a very slow process. Sadly, that's the reality. And, it, and the impact that that has on a community, not only in Xinjiang, but also the diasporic community here in Australia, in the United States, Turkey, Germany, and mm. elsewhere, literally severing families and, and, and tearing them apart and causing great mental uh, as well as physical distress. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, and please leave us a review. You can follow our guests today on Twitter. James is at Jay Leibold, and Nuri is at Nuri Tukel. And you can follow La Trobe, Asia. We are at La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.